you have uh, celebrations around your birthday that you can remember that were important or special to you. Uh, One of the things that I remember around my birthday is always going to Chuck E. Cheese uh, with one of my aunts who would take me out to eat. Because I thought uh, nothing says happy birthday quite like average pizza, uh, a creepy animatronic band in the background, and a ball pit full of other kids' germs, right? But the reality is I I didn't keep uh, asking to, to go to Chuck E. Cheese year after year because of any of those things. I went because I knew that when I would go, I would get a certain amount of tokens that I could use in their arcade to win a certain number of tickets that I could then apply to whatever, get whatever cheap kind of plastic toy my eye caught that night. And even as a second, third, and fourth grader, uh, I was a good capitalist because I figured out exactly what games I needed to play to maximize my tokens in order to get the greatest amount of tickets. And I discovered that tic-tac-toe is the best game to play they had there because you got the most tickets with the least amount of risk. And so without fail, I would play tic-tac-toe throughout most of the evening that I was there. See, I, I knew something even as a kid in, again, third, fourth grade that I I go into this night and I've only got a certain amount of tokens to use and I don't want to get to the end of the night and look back and think I wasted those tokens. I should have used them differently. And little did I know that Chuck E. Cheese was teaching me a life lesson as I grew up. Because as we look at our lives, and we reflect even for a moment, we know we've all been given a certain amount of time here on earth. Time that one day will be used up and spent. And we want to be able to look back on that and say, I've used that time well. Like no one sets out to waste their lives no, no one sets out to use up the time we've been given in a, in a way that will end up saying, I, I should have used it differently. But there are so many ways that we can use our lives that if we reflect for some moments, won't ultimately matter when we get to the end. And, and so we ask and evaluate kind of the same question over and over again in our lives, whether consciously or subconsciously. What am I living for? What will enable me to get to the end of my life and look back and say, I used it well. What am I living for? And changes and transitions, which we've been talking about in our lives, become another opportunity for us to evaluate that question as we look out at what's next for us. See, every stage and every season of our lives is temporary. I hope that's one of the things that's been coming across as we go through this series. And as changes and transitions come along, it becomes an opportunity for us to evaluate again, what do I want my temporary life to be all about? What am I living for? What is worth living for? And there are all sorts of answers that our world or our culture would supply for us to fill in the blank to that question. 
What am I living for? What's worth living for? People's approval, that I might gain more praise and recognition as I go throughout my life. Or or a, a better salary and a better office. Or a nicer house and a newer truck. Or, or a good family that, that is secure and, and likes each other and gets along. Or better vacations and, and more fun. Or, or, or a nicer retirement and a good ending to life. See, we, we fill in that blank, what am I living for? What's worth living for? With, with all sorts of good things. And yet, we've got to stop and ask and evaluate over and over again. Is what I'm living for worth it? Is what I'm making my life most about, is what I'm pursuing worth it in the end? And Jesus would tell us, point us to his mission and say, if we want to live our lives well, then he gives us a mission that's worth spending our lives for. That Jesus, the the big idea driving this morning is this, that Jesus sends us on a mission that is worth living for. And and my my goal, my hope this morning for all of us is, is pretty simple. That we would simply take one more step, even one more just small baby step maybe, towards making our lives about the mission that Jesus gives us to make disciples. As we look at what is probably going to be a familiar passage for a lot of you, especially if you've grown up in the church, my hope is that God would nudge us one step farther in making our lives to be about making disciples. As we see the recipients of the mission, the objective of the mission, the grounding of the mission, and the assurance of the mission. And so that's going to be what's kind of driving us as we look at Matthew uh, 28, 16 through 20 this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read Jesus' words to us. Father, we, we gather together, not simply wanting this Sunday morning gathering to be a ritual, something we just do because we've done it. But we gather because we want to worship you. We want to have our vision of life and this world be transformed by knowing who you are and what you've done for us. And we want to see you work in our lives, to use our lives in ways that might count and matter in the end. God, we we believe you're here with us right now, that your spirit is at work in us, and so we pray that you would speak to us, guide us, nudge us as we need to be in the next 30 minutes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. 
to the end of the age. We, we could see first, if we take a look at this passage, that the recipients of God's mission, the recipients of the mission, are always inadequate. I'm not going to spend much time on this point this morning because we're actually going to talk about this more in next week's sermon. We're mainly going to focus this morning on the second and third point here, but, but I think it's at least important for us to make note of this. That who are the people God initially, Jesus initially entrusts his mission to? Eleven disciples are told. Who if we look into their background, we know they're not the cream of the crop. Or you find that out very quick. That some of them are day laborers by trade. That, that some of them are social outcasts. That some of them are political renegades. Not the type of people that you or I would pick for the most important mission in history. And we can also see, as we hear, they, they gather around Jesus on a mountain. And we might think about the last time they gathered around Jesus on a mountain, how did that end? They all ran away in fear. Right? As they gathered on the Mount of Olives, the night Jesus is going to be arrested, the soldiers show up and Mark 14, 15 says, or 50 says what the disciples did. And they all left him and fled. I wonder if that was rolling around in their heads as they gather on another mountain around Jesus, thinking about just how much they failed him the last time. And not only that, but we hear, even as they gather around him this time and see the Jesus risen from the dead, talking to them, we're told they worshiped him and some doubted. That even here there's this mixture of worship and yet disbelief and they're far from perfect, far from adequate. And we see here what we see over and over and over and over again in the Bible. That God calls inadequate people to his mission and then accomplishes great things through them. That God doesn't use simply the varsity team who's proved their worth or the all-stars who have stuck out above the rest and demonstrated their abilities. He uses the practice squad, the C team, the people that no one else would use to accomplish his mission. But I just want to draw out with this for us. Don't fall for the I'll be part of God's mission when syndrome. When, when I'm older, when I'm smarter, when I'm more put together, when I feel like I'm more spiritual. Don't, don't fall for that. Like it, So often we can miss what God is calling us to do because we're so consumed with our inadequacies and forget God always uses inadequate people. Don't, don't fall. Let's not fall for the I'm disqualified from God's mission because of my past that Jesus has fully taken care of. Or the, the, this mission is for the missionaries, what Keystone calls global partners, or, or the pastors. Because I'll just let you in on a secret that you might already know. They feel just as inadequate as you for what God has called us to. Do, do you feel inadequate for what God calls us to, for the mission he's given you and I? Good. Because God always, always, always uses inadequate people to accomplish his mission. And if we don't feel inadequate, then perhaps we've forgotten just how difficult the mission is that he gives us. 
that the second thing we might see is the objective of the mission is always difficult as we look at verses 19 into 20. Uh, in the mid-2000s, there was a show that came on TV that you're probably all, or most of you are probably familiar with in some way. It was a show called Dirty Jobs. And uh, host Mike Rowe became a household name across America as he went and learned and then practiced some of the most difficult, dirty jobs he could find people doing. And after he was finished, after the show was wrapped up, people, someone asked him this question. And they, they said, what, what were some of the most dirty, difficult jobs you've ever done? And, and one of the jobs on that list, he gave five, but one of them was concrete chipper, where he gave this description. Every time the drum on a concrete truck turns, a thin layer of concrete sticks to the walls of the drum and hardens. By the end of the day, the interior of the drum is encased with several tons of hardened concrete, which needs to be jackhammered away. Concrete chippers crawl into the unspeakably claustrophobic environment and slowly chip the concrete away. It's dusty, dirty, back-breaking work. The mission that Jesus gives us to make disciples is more difficult than being a concrete chipper. It is more difficult than the dirtiest, most difficult job we might find here. That when Jesus tells us, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, that mission is more difficult than any other job, any other task we could ever be given. And sometimes because these verses are so familiar to a lot of us, we read over them and forget just how difficult what Jesus is calling us to do is. And so let's look at two reasons why this calling is so difficult. There are probably more, but I'm just going to point out two. First, it involves personal sacrifice. Jesus' first word is, go, right? Get, get up from what is comfortable and familiar and go do what is difficult and challenging. At Keystone, we, we believe and we would say not everyone is called to go in the sense of going across national boundaries, cultural boundaries, language boundaries to go into foreign missions. We believe some are called to go and some are called to send when it comes to that global mission. And if you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, it's one of those. Go or send. Probably fewer will go and more will send, but it's one of those, and we should think, what is God calling me to do there? But we do believe still that every single Christian is called to go and make disciples where they're at, and that that will always involve doing something, getting up, whether it's walking across the house to pray with your family and read the Bible together, whether it's walking across the street to get to know neighbors, and maybe one day proclaim the gospel to them. Whether it's serving in a ministry in the local church or, or serving in a local community, that, that in some sense we're all called to go and going is always difficult. Going is always uncomfortable. Going involves getting up, being intentional, doing something. And so that's the first reason. What, what Jesus is calling us to is not going to be easy or comfortable. But then we can also see it involves a call to radical change. Like let, 
if you're a Christian, let's just think about what are we calling someone who's not a follower of Christ to do in becoming a disciple? First, we want to think, okay, what is a disciple? Jesus calls us to go and make disciples. Okay, what is a disciple? I'm going to give a a definition that's based off some of Jesus' words in uh, John. If you don't like this definition, that's okay. You can come up with your own definition. Here's what I would say is important. That if we're supposed to make disciples, we should have an idea in our mind, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? Not simply hearing that word, but what is that? And so here's my definition on the next slide there. A disciple is someone who knows, loves, and obeys Jesus. That we could look at John chapter 8, 31 through 32, where Jesus is talking to some of the Jews, and he says to them, to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus, or disciples abide in Jesus' word which is maybe another word we just kind of say and don't always think about. But they know his word. They know the truth. They know about him, what he's like and what he said. And then Jesus goes on in uh, John 8, 42 and says to them, if God were your father, in other words, if, if you were a disciple, you would love me. That disciples love Jesus. They don't simply know about him and know facts about him, as important as that may be. But there's been a change in their hearts where now they love him. And then Jesus goes on and in John 14, 15 says this, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And and so the idea is, if disciples know about Jesus and love him, then they also will obey him. A disciple knows, loves, and obeys Jesus. So let's think about what we're doing when we make disciples we're taking or calling someone who is naturally opposed to Jesus by virtue of being sinful, just as everyone in here once was. Someone who wants nothing to do with Jesus, doesn't think there's any reason to believe him and follow him. And we're proclaiming the gospel, saying Jesus died to save you and was risen to give you life, calling them to repent, turn to him, and then to give their life to know, love, and follow after someone who they were opposed to at one time. It is easier to tame a tiger than it is to make a disciple. And if we don't think that's true, we don't realize just what has to happen for someone to become a disciple of Christ. And then Jesus says, okay, make disciples, and and here's kind of how you go about that, baptize them. Call them to repent, turn to Christ, and then baptize them. Well, why do we baptize? What's that a sign of? Dying with Christ and then rising and living with him. Or another way to put that is, we die to our sins, and then we live for Christ. And so while baptism is a picture of what takes place when we put our faith in Christ, it's also a picture that gets lived out throughout the rest of our lives. That every day we wake up and we die again to ourselves and our own wants and our own desires, and we live for Christ by his power. That, that happens throughout the... Think, just think of what is the common kind of cultural message that, that we often hear. That if we want to be happy and succeed in this life, we should be the best version of ourselves. And think about the Christian message. Die to yourself and live for Christ and find life that way. That's not going to be popular <laughs> And yet that's what Jesus is calling us to do. And then he says, okay, 
baptize them, and then teach them to observe or keep all that I've commanded you. And, and so we're reminded, all right, making disciples is not simply making converts, getting people to check a box or say yes or pray a prayer, although that might be part of it. And it's not simply making knowers, people who have a lot of information in their heads, but it's a lifelong of us teaching one another what it means to live every aspect of our lives in line with Jesus and his commands and promises. Like what Jesus is calling us to here in making disciples is massively difficult. And then he adds to it, go and make disciples of all nations. Go to every people group, every religion, every type of person and tell them, hey, Jesus is savior and king. He died to save you. He was raised from the dead to give you life. And now he calls you to follow after him with wholehearted obedience from the rest of your life. Now, why highlight the difficulty of the mission we've been given? Because if we think the mission is going to be easy, we will give up as soon as it starts to get difficult. If we want to make disciples, it's absolutely going to be hard, difficult. It's absolutely going to lead to us feeling in over our head at times. But we need to hear, don't give up because God is at work through you. Like, if discipling your kids at home is hard work and you don't see clear results, don't give up. If trying to get to know your neighbors and reach them with the gospel is really difficult, don't give up. If the ministry God's called you to serve in or lead here at Keystone is time-consuming and you don't see the results you wanted, don't give up. If, if praying, if, if you've prayed for someone, a friend or a family member to come to Christ and you've seen absolutely no change, don't give up. If God's calling you to go to another country to proclaim the gospel and it's really difficult to get there, don't give up because God is at work in and through us as we seek to make disciples. And here's the other thing that I think why we should see the mission is difficult. Because when we see the difficulty of the mission, we'll see the necessity of the church. No Christian is called to be a lone ranger making disciples. The, the mission is too difficult to accomplish apart from the church. We, we gather together. We teach and disciple one another. We encourage each other. We pray for one another. We work alongside one another. God accomplishes his mission through the church. And part of why it's so important for us to gather week in and week out is not simply so that we can check off a box, but because we're discipling one another encouraging one another, helping one another, and then we head out of the walls, disperse to make other disciples and maybe one day bring them into the church alongside the family. See, we, we've got to see the mission is difficult. Otherwise, we'll give up when it starts to get difficult. If Jesus simply gave us verses 19 through 20, this command, this commission, and that was it, I would say it would leave us disheartened and overwhelmed because we just see how hard and difficult this is. But the really good news for us is that this commission, this mission to make disciples that he gives us, is in the middle of a Jesus sandwich on either side. 
that on one end, we'll see Jesus' powerful grip over our lives. And then on the other end, we see Jesus' loving grip on our lives. And it's only when we see those two things that we won't give up making disciples and we'll be motivated to carry out this mission. So let's look, first of all, at the one end of the sandwich, Jesus' powerful grip on our lives, that the grounding of the mission emboldens us. Verse 19 says, go, therefore. So that should signal to us, okay, Jesus' command to us is grounded in something that came beforehand. And before we look at the immediate context of verse 18, let's think about the more distant context of chapter 28 as a whole. In Matthew chapter 28, Matthew's telling a story. What is that story? Jesus defeated death. That's the story Matthew's telling in chapter 28. Jesus conquered death, rose from the dead. And so the the chapter that ends with Jesus calling us to do what is difficult begins with Jesus accomplishing what is impossible. That Jesus accomplishes the impossible, Matthew wants us to know. Not just what's difficult, what is impossible. That Jesus died to pay for our sins and he took his last breath. And his body went completely cold. And his organs all shut down and started even to the process of decomposing. And he got put in a grave. And for three days, he was dead. No movement, nothing. And then he stood up, and he simply walked out. The the heart of the gospel tells us, Jesus accomplished what is impossible And he's now the one who's leading us and working through us if our faith is in him. Think about it in this way. Imagine with me that you were on a football team that was losing year after year after year and how discouraging that would be if you were on that team. And then one day, Tom Brady decided to come play for your team. I know he's retired, but he might come out of retirement, so who knows? But just imagine, if you're on that team, what happens if Tom Brady joins your team? All of a sudden, there is motivation and excitement to practice and play the game of football again. Why? Because Tom Brady is a proven winner. Whether you like him or not, he's won seven Super Bowls. And by virtue of being on your team, you know that we've got a chance to win the Super Bowl. The gospel tells us We have the one who conquered death, who won the ultimate contest, leading us and working through us. And I think the more that we marvel at the resurrection and what Jesus has done and his power, the more that we'll be motivated to make disciples. Like the more we see that Jesus can accomplish anything because he rose from the dead, the more we'll be motivated to carry out the mission he calls us to, to make disciples. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to say this in verse 18, the immediate context to that go therefore. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a mic drop line. 
That's the boldest claim a person could make. Jesus is saying, I have the right and the power to do whatever I want in heaven and on earth. Jesus runs the universe, is what he's telling us. This is a fulfillment of what Daniel looks out to see in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And so let's go there. Daniel 17, or 7, 13 through 14. I'll have it up on the screen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Son of man, Jesus, coming before the ancient of days, God the Father. And to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth because God has crowned him king over heaven and earth. I I think about, I have authority to do kind of what I want in my own house. Now, obviously, I'm married, and my wife and I work together as a team, but, but think, I could go home this afternoon, and because it's our house, tear down a wall. Might not be good, but I could tear down a wall. I could paint a room a new color, I could decide to start redoing the bathroom. I could hang up a wall hanging or multiple wall hangings. I cannot enter your house and start to do those things, right? Because your house is your house. And you would stop me if I started trying to do any of those things. Jesus is saying, the whole universe is my house and I can do whatever I please. Or as a famous theologian in the, two, or in the 1900s said by the name of Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. This is why the ascension is so important when it comes to the mission of making disciples because it tells us Jesus reigns over everything right now as king. Even though we don't see it fully, that we believe that and we live in light of that. Tim Chester wrote a book on the ascension and he said these words in there, which I think are so powerful, it captures it. When you went to bed last night, Jesus was at work subduing his enemies. While you slept, he was continuing to rule over the world. He was still at it when you woke up this morning and even now as you read this book or or listen to this sermon, that is the outrageous claim of the ascension. There's a commercial right now that you've probably seen for Head and Shoulders that has the tagline, if you listen to it, never not working. It's the idea of use head and shoulders. It's never not working to make your hair better. We could take that tagline and apply it to Jesus and say, he is never not reigning. And it's because he's never not reigning and because he reigns over everything that then we're free to take risk with our lives for the sake of the mission he calls us to. Because there's no risk that's outside of his control. See, the the more that we rest in the all-encompassing reign of Jesus, 
the more that we'll take risk with our lives to make disciples because we know there's nothing I, can't, I can risk that's outside of his control. That, that is the powerful grip of Jesus on our lives that motivates us to then carry out the mission. And on the flip side, we see the loving grip on the other end of the sandwich. The assurance of the mission comforts us. So we could jump to the end of verse 20. Picking up on the other side of Jesus' commission in verse 19 through the beginning of 20. And Jesus says this, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There, there is no sweeter comfort than this if you are a Christian. And if you're not, if you would put your faith in Christ, there's no sweeter comfort than this. That the one who has all authority over everything, who reigns as king, is with us every step of the way. And he will never leave or forsake us. And so if he's with us, he's going to work through us. Our confidence in fulfilling the mission he's given us is not in our ability, but in his ability to use us to accomplish it. I think a good cook can make a great meal out of the cheapest ingredients. And Jesus can accomplish great things out of the most meager of our efforts. If he has all authority and he's working through us. And it's because of that, that he's authority and he's working through us that no moment of you or I making disciples, no penny contributed to missions, no proclamation of the gospel, no prayer for unreached or lost people, no time, energy, or money given towards this mission will ever be wasted in Jesus' hands. No matter how small it is, it won't be wasted in his hands because this is a work through us. And then we might also see that he sustains us with his presence. He's with us. He's with us. We hit on earlier, if, if we're going to make disciples, if that's going to be the goal of our lives, we're absolutely going to run into difficulty and challenge and struggle and weakness and even failure. And it's in those places where Jesus meets us more fully and sustains us with his comfort and his presence. I, I want to give a couple takeaways, but before I do, I want to share just a, a short story here. Uh, there, there was, in the late 1800s, a guy by the name of John G. Patton uh, who went to the New Hebrides Islands uh, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And, and he went 45 years after the first missionaries landed on those islands. The first missionaries landed on the islands, and within minutes of going onto the islands, they were killed. And so John knew as he went, this is not going to be an easy task. This is not going to be without difficulty and risk. And people were warning him, even fellow Christians, you shouldn't go. You're going to get killed and cannibalized. This is a bad idea. And yet John decided, I'm going to go. I'm going to go proclaim the gospel and seek to make disciples of the people who live on these new Hebrides islands. And he later wrote an autobiography about his work, more importantly, God's work through him as he tried to evangelize and disciple the people who lived on the New Hebrides Islands. And in that book, he tells a story about one night 
where the people on the islands, like hundreds of them, are chasing after him, trying to find him so they can kill him. And he says he ended up in a tree. He's up in a tree, hiding out, as people are running around, as he hears musket shots going off, and people are looking for him to kill him. And he wrote about those hours in that tree in this way. He says, I sat there among the branches, as safe as in the arms of Jesus. Never, never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence and to enjoy his consoling fellowship. Who says something like that? I would go spend many nights in a tree hiding out to have people chasing after me if I could experience Christ's presence. Who says something like that? Someone who is absolutely convinced that the best way to spend our lives is making disciples and that no matter what difficulty we might run into in that, Jesus will be with us, comfort us, care for us. I know in sharing a story like that, you and I are never going to end up in a tree. If you do, you should write an autobiography. (laughs) But we're not going to, likely. But you and I are going to run into difficulty if you make it your goal to make disciples. You're going to run into challenge. It's going to be hard. You're going to fail at times. And we believe that it's in those moments, in those places, that Christ draws even nearer to us and comforts us And his comfort and presence is all the sweeter in those most difficult places he calls us to and those most challenging things we run into. That's the assurance that then sends us out on the mission to make disciples. Let let me give a a couple of takeaways uh, that we might think through as we close this morning. I'm going to suggest four. Making our lives more about the mission is kind of all they fall under. Number one, Think in circles. And and, and what I mean by that is to think in different circles that God has called you and I to make disciples. So I've got a picture. Uh, I know that's my handwriting. It's terrible. I know that full well putting it up. Uh, But I think God uses inadequate people, including people who can't handwrite at all. So bear with me, okay? Uh, If you can read, uh, you see them. If not, the first circle in the middle is family. And so think your, your spouse, if you're married, your kids, your brothers, your sisters, your parents, immediate family, or extended family, cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents. How does God want me to make disciples in that area? And, and then we might think locally, thinking the local church, our neighborhoods, local ministries. And then we might expand out far and think globally. Unreach people groups, uh, missionaries, what we call here at Keystone Global Partners, uh, organizations that are working to reach the world. And in each of those circles to think, how might Jesus want me to join his mission to make disciples? Maybe it's stuff that you're already doing, and that's great. And maybe it's just a nudge farther to do something else to make disciples in one of those areas. Another thing I'll just point out here is for us to think about how that center circle might expand out into the other circles. And what I mean by that is that as you make disciples, as we make disciples of family, 
that we might include them in the other areas. So ideas like maybe you, if you have kids, you take them along to see you serve in a local ministry, whether one time or, or multiple times. You, you include them in decisions on giving away money. You, you maybe talk to them about global partners that Keystone has and what they're doing and include them in praying for them. Maybe you include them in praying for people you know who need the gospel. Maybe you go as a family on a mission trip sometime, a short-term mission trip. Do you see what I mean by taking that inner circle, your family, and think about how can I multiply my efforts in making disciples by including them in those outer circles? Second thing, first think in circles. Second, dream big. Ask what if. Because if Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, then he can use our resources. He has no limit to his resources. And so he can use our meager resources to accomplish great things. Let's never stop dreaming big in what God might do through us as he works to make disciples. Thirdly, start small. Dream big, but recognize for all of us, change often happens in small baby step ways. And so start small and to ask, okay, what is one way that God might be calling me to take one farther step to make disciples this year? Maybe he wants you or I to commit to joining the rest of Keystone's prayer meetings for unreached people groups that are happening this year. There's three more. Uh, You can find them all in the weekly, or you can email Pastor Keith, our missions pastor, to find out how you might join those. Maybe he wants you to commit to supporting and praying for one of our global partners, one of whom you're going to hear from at the end of the service today. Maybe he wants you to serve in a new way at Keystone or in a local community organization. Or he just wants you to keep serving in the way you have been for the past 5, 10, 20 years, even though it's challenging at times. Maybe he wants you to commit to being more intentional to discipling your family, your wife, your kids, or others in your family. Maybe he wants you to start participating in Keystone Institute so that you can become more equipped to make disciples. Maybe he wants you to go on the Seed Week up to New York, June 12th through 18th, to learn how to proclaim the gospel on the streets of New York. If you want more information about that, you can email Pastor Keith as well, missions pastor. Maybe he just wants you to commit or recommit to praying for someone in your life who you know needs Christ. There are all sorts of things, all sorts of maybes, and we should by no means do all of them because God's not laying that type of weight on you or I. But here's what I would ask for all of us. This week, take a moment, draw out those circles that you saw up there earlier, and simply, whether it's alone, with your family, or with your care group even, ask, God, how do you want me to join in your mission to make disciples? And then just write down one or two things in each of those circles. Maybe there are things you're already doing, great. Or or maybe it's something God is nudging you to do this year to take a new step, a new risk. Just try that this week at some point, I would ask. And then fourthly, celebrate everything. Praise God where you see him at work in and through you, no matter how small it might be, because God is at work in and through you 
as you seek to make disciples. We can carry out God's mission to make disciples because we believe Jesus came on a mission to give up his life to rescue us. And as a result, he's continuing to work through us. Let's pray. Father, we would love to be a church where we see not just us growing in depth, although that's important and we want that and we pray for that and we know that that's part of growing deeper as disciples. But we would love to be a church where we see multiplying, making disciples who make disciples and God, we're confronted with we cannot do that in our own strength and if we attempt to, we'll give up. But we believe that because Christ has all power and all authority and he's with us, that you can accomplish great things through us. And so I pray that we would leave believing that and making our lives about your mission to make disciples. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.